Hi, you're listening to What's the Schemata, a schema therapy podcast for therapists. With ISST-accredited schema therapy supervisors and trainers, Chris Hayes and Rob Brockman. For more information on schema therapy, visit our website, schematherapytraining.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to What's the Schemata. This is our monthly podcast that we have for all things schema therapy. And uh, we have a great Fantastic guest here, Lars Mesden from uh, Queensland, uh, and and obviously with Rob as well. Um, yeah, welcome, and welcome, Lars. Hello, everyone. Hey, Rob. Hey, Chris. Nice to nice to be here um, finally, and uh, thank you very much for for the opportunity to come on your wonderful podcast to uh, discuss yeah. schema therapy, which I love. Well, yeah, one of the reasons why we got you on was that you're the expert in the Southern Hemisphere, at least at the moment, um, for <laughs> schema therapy forensic populations. And, yeah. you know, you're an old friend of ours and we really wanted you to kind of, yeah, sort of tell us a bit more about, you know, obviously our listeners have, uh, you know, interest in all sorts of aspects of schema therapy and this is a really important element. And interest is really sort of ramping up at the moment, you know, in this field. Um, as we know, one of our colleagues, uh, Dave Bernstein, and, co- and, and colleagues in the Netherlands have just published um, the first randomized control trial for mm. schema therapy for forensic patients with a personality disorder. So the interest is starting to ramp up. We have a lot of people that always ask questions, you know, in the workshop and, and in different trainings about what about schema therapy for the, some of these uh, offenses. Um, and Lars, you know, a couple of months ago, you and I sitting around um, having a beer after, you know, running a workshop together, and yeah. it just became really clear that we we needed to do this. We we needed to um, to have a chat to you online and and get some of these ideas out there. So I think a extremely uh, interesting um, and entertaining, and b really important, you know, for for practice, especially for those people working with you know violent offenders and whatnot. So really happy to have you, mate. Look, thank you very much for the uh, for the introduction, and uh, um, yes, I'm I'm very pleased to be here, and and hopefully this will be this will be interesting and and valuable for folks who. Of course, are- it will. Of course, it'd be interesting, mate. <laughs> so why don't why don't we start, Lars, just by you saying a few things about how you came into this? Uh, in fact, even before that, um, okay. you know, where you work and stuff like that. All right. Okay. Um, so at the moment, I work in a uh, in a private practice, a forensic um, and clinical psychology centre, um, and it's been running for just over ten years, or a little bit over over ten years. Um, and and we work primarily. I work primarily with. Um, I, I have a, a, a small regular clinical client. Uh, Which centre is that? Can we? Can you want to put a plug in? I mean, you're yeah, here. Yeah, We're doing this for over an hour. Uh, and clinical psychology centre in Paddington, Brisbane. You have an address? No, I'm just joking. Don't say the address. <laughs> um, yeah, so so I have a small clinical load, regular clinical load referrals from GPs that, that, and that like, and then uh, the significant portion of my work is actually working within the forensic realm. Um, so I work with guys who have been referred from the courts and also from government organisations to me in the community. I also work uh, regularly within the maximum security units here in Queensland. There's two of them. There's about to be three um, opened up. Uh, opening up, our well, third one opening up this year sometime. Um, but I work within then have for about seven or eight years now, um, where my role is to do uh, assessments of guys who've been placed in solitary confinement and also in some cases intervention and work with them over the longer term. Um, so this has given me um, 
access, I mean, this kind of work has given me access to working with um, folks who would probably be at the very pointy end of the stick, so to speak, uh, within the forensic area, um, because they're the ones that will typically get referred um, to see me. So guess to, Lars, to Lars Madsen. <laughs> so I guess everyone's got a different, you know, uh, journey. And, you know, I, I, I've had sort of the pleasure of working with you um, for a while, but I never really got an understanding of how you got into this work and your schema and forensic story. Like, okay. how, did you, how did you get into it? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it, um, it probably started about 20 years ago. I... Um, uh, I my, my first job out of out of because uh, I finished a, a bachelor and then a, an honors year in uh, in psychology and then I started working as a counselor within a in a prison and that was just completely incidental. Um, I I think I was we had this 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 uh, in the fo- in the fourth year you had to kind of go and choose you know you had all these placement options <laughs> and uh, you had to go and pick which one you wanted to do and. Um, and and I was late for the course. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. That was the only one that was left. It was working in a prison um, as a counselor, <laughs> well, you know, getting a placement in a prison as a counselor. Yeah, yeah. And um, and I went there. And and funny story. This is a true story. So I, I'd never been to a prison before, right? Yeah. I mean, who has? Yeah. Um, and I I wore what I thought was a. Um, you know, a pair of nice jeans, shirt, and I had a brown shirt on. And um, I rocked up to see my my supervisor, who was Stephen Smallbone, a wonderful man. Yeah. And um, and and as soon as I, as I walked in in the front gate, I realised that I was wearing the same um, uniform as, as the prison prisoners. You fell in love with the work. Prisoners actually would wear brown shirts. They usually wear brown. They wear khaki now. And, and where was this? This is this is in the UK. In Queensland, no, in Queensland. Oh right, right. So, right, um, right. so that was my first day uh, working with that. It was in the the sex offender treatment unit that they had. <laughs> And, um, and and I they had to get a like a you know like a name a big sort of prominent name tag sort of identifying me as not a prisoner because mm-hmm. when you walk around the prison then you know of course all the custodial staff would start to think well what are you doing here and it was destiny tackle <laughs> you or something yeah anyway yeah. I, I worked there for a little while and that was kind of interesting and then I got in and completed my clinical masters at at, at UQ. Um, and when I finished that, I, um, you know, I got a job um, as a research um, manager at Griffith University with my initial supervisor and mentor, Stephen Smallbone, under on a on a research project for pedophilia in Queensland, which was subsequently published, and interesting things came out of that. But in the context of doing that, I was you know sitting and doing lots of reading of of research papers in in a very cold small. Um, office and and I came across this 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 um, this article written on on um, it was written about uh, sexual murderers um, and you know the characteristics of um, as written by Don Grubin and he had his email on it and um, it so happened that Don was at the University of Newcastle upon Tyne in the north of England. Um, and I had supported Newcastle, which you know the football the, team. The football like, oh, team. Oh. This is this is. They put two and two together. Ah, so I yeah, just yeah. sent him an email. I just yeah. sent him an email on the day, completely spontaneously, and 
And he responded saying, is there any chance that I can come and do a PhD with you in England? And he wrote back, said, yep, you can send me through your CV and, oh, wow. and what you can do. And, and, um, and I, and I was fortunate enough to, um, yeah. So, so I, I started my PhD in, in England, um, in 2000, um, in the North of England in Newcastle. And, um, I, I was very fortunate there. And then I ended up, um, because I was, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. I ended up working, um, through my PhD in, um, a forensic hospital there and also in, in an intellectual disabled uh, trust. And what was the schema input? Where did that yeah, well, come about? Yeah, well, and then, yeah. then um, uh, oh, well. yeah. very interesting journey. Um, and and anyway, in the context of this, um, uh, working within the forensic hospital, they had a new unit that was opening up, which was specifically for dangerous and severe personality disorder. Right. Yeah. And um, at that stage, um, my 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 my. My PhD supervisor was going to be the head of that. He approached me and asked me, "Do you do you want to be one of the, the clinical psychologists that maybe can apply for it?" I did, and um, and that's when I got the opportunity to start to have to work and uh, um, evaluate individuals that were classified as dangerous and severe personality disorder with criminal problems. And very quickly, I think um, I think it's I think the the service shut down now, um, but very quickly i mean you you had to kind of hit the ground running and you had yeah, to imagine. how do you work with these kinds of individuals because they're not like your regular perhaps folks who present with mental health problems or mental mm. illness in the same way and that's when i really became interested in schema therapy and um and, and started to try to understand um these guys that i was working with in this context using schema therapy principles which was you know which is where what I was, was the schema therapy input like like was there someone there who had the brown book no or, no there like, wasn't you, um, there wasn't um we uh, i mean best of intentions at that time i mean people were doing dbt there was schema therapy there was cognitive analytical therapy there was a whole bunch of therapies everyone's trying to do something you know thinking that you can throw as much at it as you like and hopefully some of it sticks but i found schema because i'd done some schema training schema therapy training in the 1990s with um chris lee and 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 jeff young when he visited australia back then um so i had a little bit of an understanding of it and an interest in it so so that's where it kind of really started and i started using schema as best as i could because Back yeah. then, uh, in the two thousands, you know, the, the concept of modes didn't really, um, yeah. you know, really prominent. So it was very mm. much just the schemas that you yeah. were working with. You yeah. were getting them. So we didn't even have modes yet, really. No, not alone, alone, like forensic yeah. modes. No, no, everything that's evolved. Yeah. So, so that, so, so that, that eventuated, and then. When I finished my PhD and eventually came back to Australia, I, I started. Um, I was. Uh, uh, I wanted to continue that kind of therapy work, and that's one. That's why I started the practice, and um, and 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 in the course of that, have gotten sort of the same kinds of referrals that I got in the UK of these guys who are very psychopathic, very personality disordered, you know, very problematic in terms of how they function in the community, and um, and 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 you get many years to sort of work with them. And, uh, and that's when, uh, you know, I picked up schema therapy, obviously, again, and started. So you've been working now in this really pointy end for quite a while. Applying yeah, I would the say over 15, 16 right. years. Yeah. With the pointy end of forensic practice. Yeah. Um, so uh, Chris and I brainstormed and also we relied upon some of our listeners 
to come up with some cool questions, right? We're okay. going to fire away. Um, well, yeah, I mean, the, one of the bigger things is, you know, um, trying to keep some sort of compassion and understanding in, in play for your clients. And, you know, obviously working with offenders is, might be a little different from other populations. And I guess, yeah, one question is sort of come, comes to that really is around how do you kind of, you know, be compassionate, but at the same time keep in mind um, the, the offending behaviour, you know, and, and if you've had strong disgust or moral, you know, objections and reactions to how do you how do you handle this? How do you manage this? Sort of at the same time dealing with behaviour and the and the, the experiences that these people who are been sort of um, you know going into trouble with or you know been doing, but at the same time have compassion. Yeah. 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 Look. Excellent question, and it's one that asked. Um, uh, people ask a lot. How, how do you deal with this? Um, you know, how can you tolerate this, or how do you? you know, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night? That kind of stuff. <laughs> um, definitely. I mean, firstly, I mean, before I answer that question, I just want to kind of sort of highlight the difference that I observe between clinical psychology and forensic schema therapy or clinical schema therapy. Yeah. I mean, typically within a clinical uh, context, I mean, a client pretend, presents usually voluntarily mm. and they will present with a specific or a non-specific psychological problem that they want to help with. You know, the focus is on mental health problems, improving well-being, developing skills to help them get their core needs met in the world. They've got some problems that they want you to, you know, help them with. Within forensic schema uh, therapy contexts, you know, the ultimate goals um, you know, might not be mm. around trying to help that person yeah. manage their mental health. Although, if it's related to to their offending, then then it is. But if it's not, then it's not necessarily something that you know that's going to be you know at the forefront of um, mm. you know the the reason why they might be referred to you. In in this context, the client typically is involuntary, um, and the objectives and the goals may or may not, as I said before, be about improving their mental health or well-being. The client also um, may come with a very with a hidden agenda uh, in terms of gaining particular benefits or outcomes from seeing Yeah. So the motivators are the same. Yeah, yeah. So the motivations also do. And they may not even see themselves as having problems. Everyone else has got the problem. So the, mm. the problem is they've locked me up or, you know, that or people thing. tell me that I need to deal with this stuff or they, yeah. they tell me that I'm high risk of whatever and yeah. and I, you know, so, you know, they, they they may present to therapy motivated to pull the wool over your eyes, deny problems and basically um, try to kind of undermine the process of therapy very early on. So, mm-hmm. so working with these guys in this kind of context, you're doing quite a bit of mental gymnastics in yeah. terms of being able to kind of maintain and establish rapport and develop trust but at the same time also tolerate intense and what can be a, at times quite personalised sort of ways of kind of undermining the process or even attacks like mm. physical attacks, but I'm talking psychological and verbal attacks on you. Mm. Um, so, so, so this is kind of, you know, where you start from, I think, in, in a lot of cases, um, uh, and this is all kind of hidden in the background or yeah. implicit in, in, yeah, implicit, in the context yeah. that you're in. Yeah. So going on to your question in terms of how do you maintain compassion Look, my experience has been that the majority of the patients that I see who who come and see me come from horrendous backgrounds. I mean, they themselves have uh, been exposed exposed to to what can appear quite mm. sometimes as, as sort of unbelievable, unfathomable yeah. abuse, yeah. 
neglect. The, the, the jails are full of trauma victims oh. as much as uh, mm. they may be perpetrators too. Absolutely. The, the yeah. fact is that the, the prisons are full of, uh, you know, victims, children. For sorts of stuff. Yeah. You know, in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, mm. so when you talk to someone for the first time and you ask them about some of their earliest memories and, and some of their earliest memories are of watching their mother be bashed unconscious or they're, you know, or hiding outside their, their family home with their mm. sister and their mum while their dad, who's drunk, yeah. is roaming, looking for them with a machete. Like you kind yeah. of get, mm. uh, yeah. you know, you, you sort of, suddenly, you know, it, it alters the way you kind of see yeah. them and engage them. Mm. And, and, you know, and many of my clients will, you know, have very have these kinds of backgrounds and they end up in boys' homes or institutions where, in some cases, they're the smallest child. Yeah. And what happens to the smallest child in these environments? Well, what happened 20 years ago or 30 years ago was they, they get raped by everybody else. Mm. And, um, you know, when that's your experience and that's what you're being, being exposed to as a, as a child, like, and this is what they tell you, this is my childhood, this is what I remember, this is my earliest memories, this is all I can remember. And this is in earnest. Like, this is not wool over your eyes stuff. This is, well, this is some someone. Cases, some, yeah. Some guys, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll yep. do that. But, yep. but, you know, with, I guess, with forensic schema therapy, I mean, what we a lot of the offending occurs in the overcompensating modes yeah. and, and these modes end up, you know, existing because like what's happened at the, um, <laughs> what's happened, what's happened in that? You, ha- you have mail. <laughs> what's that? You have mail. <laughs> uh, you have mail. Was that me or you? I don't That's, know. <laughs> Somebody. <laughs> um, a lot of the time these overcompensating modes have been yeah. formed through these horrendous... So it sounds actually, as I hear, and I've heard this too, we've talked about this a lot as well, um, Lars, the, the sort of balance, you know, and the compassion seems to come easy when you can connect to the child modes and the kind of needs and the trauma that goes along with that. The compassion flows pretty easily. But when you get more into the overcompensation modes, uh, that's where it becomes a bit, a bit different or I imagine you're not, uh, you know... As, as able to hold the compassion when someone yeah. might have an overcompensatory mode that's very dangerous or um, wanting to hurt people. Yeah, I mean, I, I I like to think about it as, you know, I'm, I'm trying to balance a seesaw where on the one end I can't be their advocate um, and, and just see them as victims that are passive and that they need to be protected. They need, And on the other hand, I can't see them as just being absolute predators and, um, mm. you know, intractable and incapable of, 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 you know, improving the world. You kind of have to have the balance where you, on the one hand, have this healthy sort of warm, compassionate engagement and genuineness with them mm. and curiosity in their life in, 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 uh, about them and about their experiences. But at the same time, you also need to hold them accountable for their experiences and their interactions and you need to be boundaried. Um, How do you find in terms of like your, when your own sort of reactions to the offending, um, you know, sort of comes to, to play, you know, I think most of us would have a reaction to a particular type of crime, you know, maybe it's a sex, sex offender or a, someone who's um, involved with pedophilia. Like how do you manage, manage that within, within your, your work? Um, yeah, look, it, it is tricky. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I have a number of, of like, I mean, 
like typically when when I'm very few guys will present and be um, uh, telling you, you know, I love this and I did it because this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, right. yep. You know, there'll always be a reason. There'll be a story. There'll be a narrative mm. that that ultimately will it for them at least will explain why they did what right. they did. And, and for them to make sense of it themselves. and exonerate some responsibility or yeah, yeah in many cases you know mm. i was going through a difficult time in my life i mm. you know i was confused i was on drugs i i yep. you know yep. all this stuff happened and and you know i had my childhood trauma you know so very few guys present as in basically screw you i love it and i'm you know i'll keep doing yeah. it and yeah. uh, you know, so so you know that what that means is you're never really being confronted with this this utterly sort of rigid view of their offending. You you know you you you've been confronted with a very nuanced, yeah. kind of complicated, difficult, mm. sort of you know pained way that they themselves experience it. And what I will say for a lot of guys as well is that, um, you know they. If particularly offences against children or uh, vulnerable people, I mean, the you know these guys are the lowest of the low within the prison system. You know, so any environment that they go in, they're targeted. You know, um, uh, you know, so these guys are not. Um, so it hasn't worked for them on a number of levels. No, 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 within no. prison. I mean, they they will they present to me in my office or wherever I see them, and 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 you know every person in in the prison unit will know what they're in for and what they've done, and you know people will have thrown hot water at them, or they will have spat at them, or they will have threatened them. You know, so many of these. Guys, so these guys are generally not acceptable even within uh, within the prison system within their colleagues, yeah. you could say. Very few people. You get the guys who are violent, adult violent offenders, you know, are, are slightly different in that regard. But, I mean, the child sex offenders and the and the really the child murderers and those types of things, I mean, they, they are targeted very, very assiduously by the prison population and by people within the prison population because of what they've done. So there's a big, I guess, transference load, though, like in oh, this yeah. kind of work, right? Like we all talk about that in, in, in therapy, but... Uh, talking to you, I, I definitely got the feeling that there's there's more to it, a lot more to it with these clients. Mm. Totally, totally, yeah. I mean, um, so when I when I work with guys, I usually don't, you know. So it's not like a situation where I'm sitting there saying, I, uh, "It's it's you know, it's about kind of working with them in terms of understanding what they did." Uh, and yeah. they, because in, in many cases they, they they wish they'd never did it. They they feel horrible about it. They their life has been ruined for. So sometimes the formulation is the thing that kind of gets you to see different elements. I would imagine, and for them, it's a part of that too. They're trying to formulate, understand what the experience is about, but also kind of yeah, sort of. I guess a, a lot of it does come to that formulating for yourself why someone does something and what mode might have been operating and yeah occurring. Uh, yeah. And I generally don't share my strong feelings of disgust or, or yeah, yeah. Rage, um, yep. Yep. at least not directly, you know, yep. like I, I will do it in a, in a healthy and, and controlled way. And, mm. and, and, you know, when we do some of the schema techniques, you know, I will, you know, I will, I will, I will you know, that will be a part of the dialogue, but it won't carry the emotion because, you know, I find that doing that really, you know, can be problematic for, you know, 
for the session as well because yeah. you're very sensitive to it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know whether it's always very helpful if I kind of allow myself to just get too much into that when, when we deal with these things. I have, um, I mean, I went to my... To my other, to my other supervisor, my other, my supervisor, and, and talked about a very strong reaction of disgust that I had with a with a client a number of months ago, and um, and it was really kind of interesting um, exploring, you know, what was <laughs> what what it was about that because I it was one of the first times that I really had that experience um, viscerally in session, yeah. believe yeah. it or not. And and the incident, well, the issue was around this person who had. Um, you know, done some pretty nasty offending, but had then used his, you know, had then worked basically as a, as a, you know, as a prostitute, as a male prostitute within the prison before all the, even though he wasn't gay or anything like that, he just used his body in a, in a, in a way to just get his way, get privileges and opportunities in prison in, in a completely manipulative, cold and cunning and callous kind of way. And, there's something about that that was pretty kind of triggering for me for some reason. And, 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 and he was, and this was a situation where he was like totally unrepentant and disconnected mm. from, from uh, you know, his own reaction to that, which, um, which I think surprised me that it triggered me. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that's, so I find that, 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 when I, a lot of the times when I work with guys who who come with really horrific offences, you know, my my approach is very much around trying to be a stable and healthy kind of influence in their life and not one that is overly judgy and not one that is um, at the same time kind of allowing them to see themselves as a victim and mm-hmm. hold them accountable. Um, and uh, I, um, you know, I try to have that kind of very, do you take that approach of to seeing it as as a, a mode or a part has done the offending, or is that too much of a, a bridge? Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and that's, um, I think, in in, in rather the whole all the work that I've done, uh, you know, using the schema therapy mode mm. stuff has, you know, all the mm. offending that we end up exploring and making sense of and and learning how to understand, you know, all comes from from the overcompensating mode. Yeah, like some of them are the uh, maybe. Uh, Angry child, child, enraged child. So I guess we touch on this now, but um, you know, one of the powerful images that we posted that you you know kindly um, shared with us, Lars. You've been doing a bit of artwork around this stuff, which was was really awesome. uh, Was this kind of theme of you know staring into the abyss? Mm. Be careful what you look into, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Do you want to say a few things about that? Because I think you kind of touched on that a little bit just now. Mm. I guess linking it back to those that kind of graphic and that idea that you know maybe you need to be prepared for this kind of work or you know be careful what you look into because then you might not like what you see staring back. I, I don't know. I mean, can you say a few things about that that idea? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think um, one of the things that I've noticed in in the years that I've worked uh, in forensic clinical uh, contexts is that. <laughs> You know, there, there are two kinds of responses that can sort of get played out in environments. Um, typically, there is the response where someone um, ends up seeing um, the the offender or the patient as a complete perpetrator that's intractable and incapable of changing, and everything gets 
you know, sort of filtered through that lens in terms of their behaviour, in terms of them engaging in therapy or not, in terms of them benefiting from therapy or not. You know, everything is, this is all about offending all the time. Uh, and there's a lot of pressure, I think, on, on young um, and, you know, I think any anyone going into these environments, if you're supposed to be independent and work with these guys and and and, and be able to sort of travel this journey with them there's a lot of pressure on you to sort of conform with what the culture says um i think that's really tricky um linked to that like i think that there's a danger that when you go into these environments then you, you sense this sense of black and white view of this person and and you can almost kind of drift towards acting as a bit of an advocate for them you know and um and i've seen and been in in workplaces where um, you know, people have uh, good psychologists, uh, therapists have gone in and um, they, uh, they have worked in these environments and over time become quite worn down by it and started to see the, the, the patients as, as um, victims and then being exploited and taken advantage of right. by them in, in this kind of context. And mm-hmm. you know, there's been, uh, I mean, I could, I could tell some horrible stories around it where, you know, people's lives end up being ruined and, and the horribleness and things like that. But one thing you've been talking about before is this accountability idea too. So having this balance of being compassionate and formulating. It's like a dialectic behavior. or something. Yeah. 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 At the same time, you know, you've done this, you need to be accountable for these, these behaviors and these sort of experiences. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's where it's different, right? Like if, if, if folks, these guys have this idea, well, I've done, you know, I've got this background and that discounts anything after that. But I guess you're coming at it from, I guess, the opposite of that is, yes, this thing's happened and it's not cool the way you cope with that no. because it hurts other people. So it's, absolutely. you know, the trauma doesn't disqualify responsibility. Yeah. No, absolutely. In that model. And I guess that's something a lot of people actually ask in this gear model. You know, do you empathise, you know, how you know, people that, that get maybe triggered off about this, how can you empathise with that or something? And I guess that's the answer maybe or part of the answer is. Yeah, I mean, you empathise with with the vulnerable, traumatised parts that that. That, that exists for these people. Mm, mm. Going back to staring into the abyss, I mean, I, uh, I guess one of the things that I, I mean, I think over the years um, I've been exposed to horrible stories, um, images in my mind. I've actually had to, you know, read files where they have the, where, where people have been sort of hit with hammers and, and stuck with knives, where they have the, you know, crime scene photos in it. And, you know, like, I mean, so you get exposed to some of this stuff, which you never, you know, I, I don't think, you know, one can really prepare you for that. It's not normal, is it? Is it? No. This is not normal kind of stuff. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah. And in, in sessions. Not meeting your needs. <laughs> that's right. You know, it's, it's important to remind it, yourself of that. Sometimes when you get stuck in it, you know, it's just going to remind yourself this is not normal. This is not normal. And in, in sessions, I've I've definitely had the tables turned on me. I mean, I'm, you know, I've had guys when when we've done a chair work or we've done some imagery work who've just in the middle of this thing have just turned the tables on me and then and and done it in very subtle and intimidating ways. And when you know their history and what they're capable of, you have this moment of real fear where you think, mm. well, actually, I could really, really get hurt right mm. now. If yeah. this person physically it. hurt mm. oh yeah i mean i've had yeah. there was one incident with this guy who who is very renowned very calm very psychopathic and very 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 calm and we did some beautiful chair work i thought <laughs> and then sure. and then um as we're getting you know we're talking about his vulnerable parts and overcompensating part and then suddenly he just stops 
and he takes a step closer to me into my personal space, which is a big thing. Like I always keep a bit of personal space from people, basically because, you know, like it is. And then he just looks into my eyes and just says, you know what I'm capable of. And if I don't get what I want, then you know what will happen. Mm-hmm. And then immediately flipped out of it and said, you know, I'm just joking. I'm just fine. You yeah, know, right. Yeah. Well, like, <laughs> it's like just joking, Lars. Just joking, mate. Drop Not a little hand. Lars. Drop a little hand grenade into the session, sort of thing. So there's so, two I mean, aspects there. Though, the kinds of things where you actually, you know, like I mean, it it, it can really it, it can, and and I mean, through the years, I think I've had trauma-related symptoms. I've had intrusive images, anxiety, insomnia, and you know, thoughts mm. I can't get out of my head related to this work. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Not exactly advertisement for the, for this kind of work, uh, Lars. No, <laughs> yeah, I know. I guess we could talk about the positive I mean, aspects as well. Part of it is the, the reality of it. I mean, you mm. know, you can't do schema therapy when you just stay in the cognitive, really. Yeah. Um, with yeah. the, or if you're scared. I mean, how do you deal with that? If, if you're, um, as a therapist, I mean, there's two things that come up for me listening to you. One is like a physical safety, mm. uh, which I don't, I don't usually... Um, you're six foot four, a, sort of six foot, mate, six foot five. Get it right. I'm sort of don't yeah. tend to feel that, but I would imagine in that setting that would be an issue, the physical safety aspect, mm-hmm. and then dealing with that. But then there's emotional safety too. Like um, if you come to kind of get close to people like that in a way, right? And and they become endearing, or it's a part of the model as well to connect. Yes, you know, and to have someone like that that you let in, maybe turn the tables on you in a way. I mean, there's some emotional safety thing. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that's, I mean, I, I think very rarely have I felt physically unsafe. I mean, in many cases when people end up coming to me, it's, you know, they're much more regulated and and you can form a rapport with them. I mean, uh, and and I and I think as schema therapists, you, you, you're taught how to be able to kind of connect and perhaps tune down things with folks and, and take the energy or the heat out of a moment if, if you need to. Um, we have a lot of soft skills, I think. Um, yeah, but emotional safety, I mean, that's a tricky one. And, and um, I, I think that's, that's much more complicated. I mean, I've had um, in, in situations where, where, where things haven't turned out okay, where people, you know, have made death threats and then they've made death threats towards my family because of, because of um, you know uh, reports or perceptions, different outcomes, and yeah, so this is something you've had to deal with. Things that you have no control over, yeah. and and you know, and that's just how how, and and this stuff has been very is very rare. You know, the vast majority of experiences are actually. I imagine supervision is super important mm-hmm. like in those moments, and totally. Totally. Getting your own support and stuff, and 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 in those moments, under those significant that that amount of stress, I mean, it's it, it's it's where it's it's you're also keeping that balance is really tricky because it's very easy to then just kind of swing down one end and say, well, this guy is completely gone and he shouldn't have anything, and um, and 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 this is how it is, which is of course, yeah. I mean, so in a way, we I guess we highlight some of the negative aspects, but you do it for a reason, like. Like, I don't know, it just came into my mind now. We should also talk about that to balance it out. Like, mm. here you are 20 years down the track and you're doing all this schema work. Like, what makes you tick if there's all this kind of yeah. turmoil wrapped up in that as well? Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, I suppose that the motivations along the way have, have changed as as uh, as they do. Um, I think when I was a little kid, 
I really enjoyed horror movies and Frankenstein and Dracula. So there was an aspect of that sensation seeking, perhaps, uh, perhaps ah. appealing. Um, I, I think that as I've, what I enjoy, what I enjoy about how interesting is a part of you that likes some of that, the story aspect of that, or yeah, 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 uh-huh, like, uh-huh. Um, and there's something about that, isn't there? Like, like, um, these crime podcasts and things are just like incredibly, um, popular, like you know, staring into the abyss in that way is, is incredibly it's, it's popular, it's almost a sexy topic if you go to popular uh, media and that kind of thing. There is, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you just have to. Go in the airport uh, um, book stores and see just the entire wall of uh, <laughs> crime uh, stories. Uh, Lars Madsen uh, is just a walking, you know, podcast crime story podcast. <laughs> no, maybe not. <laughs> no, maybe not. But it won't. Um, uh, it won't. Yeah. So, so I think over the years, I mean, what I found really fascinating about it is I enjoy the the challenge, the 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 puzzle, putting it together. Uh, I enjoy the the puzzle of of engaging folks and that are really tricky um, and I enjoy the puzzle mm. of making sense of their life, really. Uh, I mean, I'm doing saying that in a grandiose kind of way, but in a sense that in in many of these of guys, course. they have absolutely chaotic and dysfunctional, you know, um, existences and, and being able to kind of work with someone over a period of time to be able to, you know, help them understand their life and understand what happens for them and understand the different sides of themselves. And, and I guess be able to sort of see a pathway out of that in some way or see that there is a different pathway is, I think, really rewarding um, psychologically for me. Um, what, what about um, critical modes in this? Because we've talked a bit about coping modes. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that? Like, you know, in terms of shame, guilt, feeling, is there a healthy element to this? You know, do, are there... Um, people that present it as completely have zero critic modes, you know, or do they have some experience of that? Have you any comments around that? Look, my experience is that it varies for different individuals. Uh, some, most of the guys that I, I work with, when you get down to the very core of it, have an enormous amount of shame and defectiveness and guilt yeah. that sit at the bottom of it. Really powerful schemers. And, um, you know, and, and the powerfulness of those schemas kind of, re- you know, sort of almost proportionally are linked to sort of the strength of the overcompensating modes or, or the, how they present to you, yeah. um, you know. And early on in therapy, I find that, you know, people have, uh, people that I've worked with, you know, uh, often have very little awareness and certainly very little tolerance of, of vulnerability, mm. of experiencing their vulnerability or, or judgment or your judgment. Yeah. You know, um, do you ever find it like where like someone's in an overcompensated mode and they've got a sense of this shameful, you know, side to themselves, and it's sort of the critic is sort of there, but sort of you know protected by the mode, like the coping mode, the overcompensation. Is it? Is it? You find that kind of pattern happening? To you know, in your well, some of those guys, I, I find actually that that it's almost like some of these overcompensating modes have become their primary modes. Of yeah. Being. Yeah. Yep. Everything else. Yep. You know, and when you come and along and you you start talking about this sort of stuff, does that activate and just you know activate critic modes, or is it just purely the the vulnerable, you know, shameful element? You kind of... it, it, it's varied. Yeah. Um, for some folks, it, it it's never happened, and mm. um, I, you know, I think that maybe they don't have critic modes. I yeah. think for other guys, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, that they that they fight very much against it. And um, I mean, one of the, one of the times where I experienced a, a sense of the tables being turned on me was um, uh, was an experience of when we're doing some chair work and and we were trying to sort of get in touch with this vulnerable side of of um, of, of, of the, the person that I was working with and and then suddenly he switched and he became this kind of like it, it was quite fascinating at, at yeah, one sure. level <laughs> afterwards yeah. Yeah. Um, in, resp- it, in reflection it, it was almost like his eyes just went blank completely yeah dark black yeah. you know, i know that's not possible but in that moment it, it very much felt this like this is what happened in your head at least right? yeah i know and then he just kind of he stopped he stopped moving he started moving differently he started just interacting differently and he just became his voice became very different and just said back off you're not going yeah. there and yeah. and it's like okay so and, going along yeah and, and and look so my experience of that was that was getting in touch with the the shame and 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 yeah. and, mm. and that that's because I've certainly had people where you try to sort of assess some kind of critic. These are people more like the kind of folks that you would see, and they just look at you in the eyes. And like often, I'd say things like, "Oh, you know, do you ever beat yourself up, or you know, if um, if you notice that you made a mistake or that maybe you hurt someone, would you feel you know beat yourself up in a way? You know, can you be hard on yourself?" And I, I've had clients look at me and sort of say. Um, you know, why would I do that, Robert? <laughs> kind of thing, just deadpan, straight look at you, and and just sort of, you know, um, that's never felt really very healthy. Uh, and I, so again, then it made me mm. wonder, you know, is the absence of any critic healthy? Like, you know, do you want no no critic activity, regardless of the behaviour? Well, um, you see what I'm saying here. Like, there's, what's yeah, the role yeah. of the yeah. critic in? Something like morality and mm. yeah, I mean it's it's because um, it could be healthy shame, couldn't it? You've, you know, you you're driving drunk, drive, you know, one of us might be having a few drinks, have an accident. Because what I see in healthier out. people is not an absence of critic, but it's more like a very quick, fairly quick regulation of that. So they'll be like, oh yeah, like I did feel bad about it, and then I sort of, and then they go into something like healthy. They'll say, look, but I really thought about it, and I thought about what I might do to rectify the situation or to yeah. reach out to that person. So there's some moment of shame, you could call it, or guilt or something like looks like a critic and then something like the healthy adult takes over. But the message is it's still like there. A but... functional element. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I would, the way I conceptualise it when I work with guys who who really struggle in this space is, is, is just around... Um, you know, I have a very pragmatic approach to things where it's like, okay, this is just really about helping you survive and exist in the community um, without getting into trouble or hurting other yeah. people or putting yeah. yourself at risk in some kind of way. And that's what we've got to figure out. We've got to figure out how we can do that. And with folks who are very, very psychopathic and psycho- psychopathy, I think very high score, very psychopathic um, individuals um, will lack, will have an ambivalence. Mm-hmm to to well why should i you know like they they, they there's an aspect of of them that's perhaps lacking in that certainly from my experience and and really you have to you 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 negotiate with them like you negotiate a business deal in terms of them being able to kind of deal with wow. life in a way that you know wow. either they're motivated to you have- allude to something here also which is a sort of transactional exchange 
Yeah, absolutely. With some of these guys that's maybe not there in clinical settings. Yeah. It's the hook, isn't it? It's it's a therapeutic hook. Like they're not going to just yeah. do it because they just feel like it. It's because you're going to have more sort of freedom or you're going to be able to see your kids more. Or and that's hook. I mean, when you work with more neurotic type of clients with depression, anxiety, you don't need to name the hook so much because it's obvious. You know, they feel depressed every day or they're anxious all the time. Yeah, you help them to. Chris with, talks about this a lot with the narcissistic clients. You have to find that hook and then we start to, that becomes more part of the work. Yeah. But then I guess, and I've talked to you about this too, Lars, there does seem to be almost a transactional thing sometimes with these guys. Mm. Some of these, like, uh, and this is why schema therapy I think is so great with, with some of these guys. I mean, a lot of them, when they come and see me, will have been through group programs where they are expected to feel empathy mm. or, you know, show empathy or, or things like that or be compassionate. And, that. And, and they fail miserably because they just can't, you know, they can't do it. They don't care. They, or they try to sham it and then they. But do, yeah, do they, do they sort of um, learn to mimic those yeah, responses? Well, they try to. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, they, they, they definitely, and they'll, they'll report this. And I think with schema therapy, once you have the formulation of understanding, well, this is maybe a, a really psychopathic individual, they're not going to, they're not going to behind the empathy stuff. They're not going to get with that. And, you know, expecting that that's what they need to do to progress in their life or in therapy is unhelpful because it just kind of sets them up to fail all the time. But if you can actually approach them from the perspective of saying, well, I don't expect you to do that. But what I do expect you to do is to be better at understanding and managing the parts of you that end up offending. Mm. And certainly they can get with that. They can go, okay, mm. yeah, yeah, no, that, that's what but I also like. imagine, I'm to go with that. I also imagine just trying to force empathy feels, feels like you're just forcing the outcome without engaging in the process. So if I think about empathy, it's it's based upon something that looks like connection. Mm. Like I feel something with you because I'm connected. I'm connected to you as a person or I'm connected as a human being to other human beings and that drives empathy, for example. So I imagine connection like actually would be a part of that, like in trying to help someone show more empathy towards other people is to help them in their relationships and to be more open to that. Yeah. For a connection for connection's sake versus yeah. connection for, you know, having some sort of other secondary gain, I guess. Yeah. 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 Hey, you so know what I'm saying? It sounds like the empathy, if you just push for that uh, as a primary outcome without working on some of the things underneath that, like the needs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I mean, in, in some cases they actually will, you know, won't even know what their needs are or their needs will just be about kind of whatever's happening in the moment. But it's by being able to help them become better at recognizing goals that are useful for them in their life. Uh, and that may or may not have to do with being more empathic, you know, in, in most cases, you know, with these guys, they just can't experience it. They get frustrated. Hmm. So I'm sensing too what you're saying is sometimes you just work on being a bit more functional as a sort of totally. a starting point. Yeah, totally, totally. So, so you know, what's what are the main modes in your perspective would be problematic for people's offending or, you know, sort of driving offending behaviour? Obviously it's a big net and there's going to be a lot of different sort of facets to the actual, you know, offences, but what would you say would be the top you know, sort of modes that would be uh, useful for our listeners to know a bit about? The, in my experience, um, uh, offending, offending behaviour will typically go in a sequence of events. 
there'll usually be some kind of trigger. The vulnerable schemas uh, are triggered. Uh, there's a vulnerable mode, and then there's a reaction to that uh, distress that gets kind of uh, kicked into play. Um, the, Would you say vulnerable only or vulnerable and or angry? Yeah, yeah, angry mode. So, you know. Because often there's some sort of angry core to this, isn't there? There can be, yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely. Um, the schema the schema modes, the overcompensating modes, the self-aggrandizer mode, the bully and attack, the, the predator, conning manipulator, the paranoid over-controller, um, and the um, impulsive child, the angry child, the enraged child are, are ones that, that crop up constantly in terms of, um, you know, in my work when, when working with guys and trying to map out their offending pathway in terms of how they ended up doing what they did what about like so in terms of uh the ramifications is that where other kind of more avoidant modes might sort of play a role like in terms of compartmentalizing a denial and this sort of stuff like you say someone is offending and does the offense in x mode like a predator mode later does that do you see someone mainly keep remaining in that overcompensation mode or do they kind of flip into more you know can they flip into other more avoidant modes such as extreme detached protector Flip backwards and forwards, between, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, so my experience is that in a in a sequence of offending, yeah. there will be, um, you know, there there can be half a dozen modes backwards and forwards that they flip in and out of, right to the point when when they're actually offending, um, <clears throat> like when in the process of the actual offence, um, they will flip from mode to mode. Um, yeah. They're quite distinctive. A lot yeah. of this, like, tend to be more jolting and and dissociative and distinct. Yeah, I mean, they, they feel it as distinct in terms of their emotional experience of it because it becomes focused on different things. So I find that, for example, the predator mode is really, really cold and, and, and orientated to achieving a particular outcome, usually yeah. around trying to, you know, take someone out in, in some way. Have any of you watched um, the show that's on at the moment? Uh, it's called Dr. Death. No. Not yet. <laughs> oh, you gotta, you got to watch it. you got to watch it. So you just made me think of that. But... Um, there's a doctor there who's is a surgeon, and he, all these people are dying, and and it, it, they go through a period where they're trying to figure out: is this guy like a, a psychopath? Like, is he doing this on purpose, or is he incompetent? Uh-huh. But as it as it oh, well, I won't give it away. Actually, um, you know, he's doing all these surgeries, but but yeah, again, once you start looking at it with this lens, you just, you just kind of get roped into that every time you watch a show. Mm-hmm. I mean, and this is uh, just. A slight segue. I mean, I I find that um, uh, um, movies and 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 these kinds of um, uh, television shows, you know, if you you want to sort of upskill yourself and trying to spot particular kinds of modes, it's a really good educational tool for doing it. Yeah. Get, a, get a sheet of your of of the um, schema modes and 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 look at the the mm-hmm. uh, the perpetrator in it and and try to see whether you can pick what you know, where he kind of flips in and out of. And, and surprisingly, it, 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 you can once you start to tune into it. Well, something interesting, um, we, Chris and I were lucky enough to get an early draft of a chapter that you, uh, an article that you're writing, a case study with yep. yourself and, and Dave Bernstein, mm-hmm. one of our colleagues um, in the Netherlands. And that was really fascinating as well. And I guess it sort of segues into this a little bit. Uh, yep. what, tell me the title of your, what's the title of the chapter? I was blown away by the title. The title, the title is called um, Untangling Sexual Murderer, Forensic Schema Therapy, Case Conceptualization of a Child um, a child Murderer. Yeah, okay. So going into that, what, what I got the idea that, um, 
you know, sexual offences could be driven by different modes. Mm. You know, there were those that were driven by something like an angry child. Yeah. Uh, there were those that were is that right? Like, so um, I guess it's a bit like when we think often about, you know, what's driving anger <clears throat> behaviour? Well, it depends on the mode. Like, what kind of anger is it? Yeah. Uh, going back to the conceptualization. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Sexual offending can take a, a range of um, uh, modes and, and the motivation can be very, very different. It, can't, it isn't necessarily just sexual gratification um, as some believe that it, that it actually is. With this fellow that um, we wrote the chapter on, um, I mean, for him, his, his story and background was very much uh, significant trauma, horrible things happened to him. And over his over the course of his life, he life he'd started to develop these routines and habits for dealing with um, his feelings of powerlessness and impotency mm. and, um, mm. and that type of stuff. And that involved stalking people at yeah. night. Yeah. And he learned this skill. Um, he, he which made him feel powerful. Mm. Yes, yeah. To to distance himself from some feelings of powerlessness and helplessness. Yes. Yeah. So he felt. I mean, some of his core schemas was around subjugation. He grew yeah. up in a you know difficult mm. you know, type of orphanage situation where, you know, it was all about subjugation um, for him and defectiveness and all these other um, schemas. But his experience was essential: was rejection and 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 um, uh, helplessness, powerlessness, lack of influence, failure. And as a teenager, he started to develop a capacity. He started to to learn uh, that you know if you you know you, you can go and, and do this these peeping tom behaviors and stalking behaviors of people without them knowing, and he would have this sense of uh, power and sense of control. Mm, right. Yeah. 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 Right. And the evolution of yeah, the like I could do this without you even knowing, and then so somehow I'm better than you, or it's I, a kind I of challenge. You. I have something over you. I and mm. so so he would then, you know, we started to work out that this 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 pattern that eventually led to these horrible murders um, started in his when he was 12, 13, 14, when when mm. when he was going through these difficult experiences, and this is what he learned, and he learned this repetitive pattern where he would go stalking people, mm. and he would feel powerful, and and that would be like enough for him, and and as but it sounds also like a, a sort of graduation, yes, like it started. You talked mm. about being an adolescent, and then it's like stealing undies or, you know, that peeping tom type situation, but then it it graduates. Yes, yeah, it, it it graduated, and and it graduated in line with his fantasy processes. So he would also act out these these um, uh, these thoughts through the fantasy process that became more and more explicit, extreme, and violent. Um, and and that was linked, you know, it seemed to be, you know, the the um, iterations of this, the level of violence and 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 sadism um, that he. That, that he needed um, seemed to kind of, you know, link to his, um, his you know, his, his experience in his life of just feeling, you know, utterly helpless and worthless and useless. So that sort of peeping Tom, you know, upskirt type type offender, what mode would you put that down as? <clears throat> Depends on... Generally, on, generally. I know I speak uh, in yeah, general terms. Um, uh, so... Um, so, so a lot of these guys will report experiencing a very significant um, uh, sense of uh, of power mm-hmm. experience. Like, as, so I mean, we've labelled it for this guy to be the self-aggrandizer for him. So he feels yeah. self-aggrandizer and and yeah. revels in it. Revels in the sense of I've got you and I've. 
got something over you and I'm yeah, I'm, and, I'm doing this and you don't even know it. Like yeah, sort of I'm thing. here and you're here and, and yeah. I can do and and for this fellow, I mean he he would um and that's what he would do. He would revel in he would he would stalk women um mainly well it would be women girls and he would then and they wouldn't know it but he would mm. then, from a distance look and, and play through these fantasies and think well I could I could hurt you I could take you I could do things do, you don't know it. do you think um skimmy therapy's got something to offer for things like profiling and stuff like that or is it you know profiling offenders or is that um, that's the well, stereotype well, <laughs> yeah I mean there's uh, it's my mentalizer. Was it was it the show that we used to watch, Mentalizer or something? The Mentalist. Uh, mentalist. mentalist. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we got Lars Madsen, the Mentalist. This can be what they would call the podcast. Yeah. Um, I'm not so sure about profiling. Um, I, I mean, I think they're, they're some they're, general principles that sound consistent. But possibly. what about a, a fence yeah. analysis? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and mm. um, so, for example, with uh, yeah, in in. In the, in the therapy that I do with a lot of guys in the community and, and guys in the institutions, once we understand their mode map and their offence yeah. pathway and the modes that are relevant to, to their offence pathway, then yeah. it actually becomes a way of evaluating how they're going in the moment. How risky right. or dangerous are they? Yeah. You know? yeah. So if 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 this um, if this if an offender who who's maybe had a, a sequence of you know, self-aggrandize, a bullying attack, predator type modes that are kind of activated in his offending sequence, if he's walking around in, in this kind of space uh, in his head with these modes activated, then you can get a sense, well, actually, this is really problematic. So um, actually these um, the schema <coughs> modes, this is actually something too that crystallised for me talking to you and, and, and forensic psychologists. Uh, you know, these modes really represent the risk factors for offending. Yeah. So you, you're intervening Absolutely. directly with those vulnerability factors. Absolutely, absolutely. We, you know, it, it, you can directly assess um, uh, the, and this is what David Bernstein and I talk about in the chapter as well, is that that idea that uh, these modes actually provide another way of doing a, a risk assessment. assessment. Yeah. Um, Will we ever get to the stage where people are in court talking about vulnerable child and bullying attack, like <laughs> using these kind of labels in a sort of legal sense? Um. It surprised me a little bit that it hasn't because I think it's kind of interesting I, I, that defence lawyers would cling on to something or... Maybe. I mean, I have been to court here in Queensland um, in relation to giving schema therapy to, um, to, 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 to particular individuals and um, um, there has been, well, I think two cases or one case maybe two, maybe two, um, where the judge... Where I've been crossing. Tell me, the judge said vulnerable child mode. <laughs> no, no, but the judge was very curious about schema therapy and um, and with with a very complicated psychopathic, difficult individual, and and was very uh, curious about it. And then in in this in her summing up, you know, sort of recommended that that uh, the treatment should continue in in this line um, with schema therapy. So, so I, I think. Um, in those kind of contexts, I think schema therapy is going to be um, is going to be relevant in in terms of showing that showing courts and and institutions and things like that that someone is is engaged in in appropriate therapy is benefiting from therapy is that the treatment is is valid and and useful and and actually directly linked to managing um, the this person's 
the vulnerability mm. factors. Yeah. Hey, I was yeah. going to ask you um, around deceit and, you know, sort of clients sort of these sort of, you know, populations might be using a lot of um, charm and grooming and deceit and basically lying to your face a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, how do you manage that in the therapy relationship, you know, in terms of when you know that they've done X, even, even apart from the offending, you know, maybe they have, you know, not attended to particular sort of events or they've done this and that and they're sort of lying to you. How do you manage that? I've always been interesting. It's it's complicated. And, of course, there will always be, with these guys, I I think there's always an element of it one way or another. It just depends on how how prominent it is for that individual. Like I've had a a, a client who who just seemed to constantly be in that space all the time, which was very very challenging. But um, him aside, I guess... One of the things I would say, it, it depends, how you deal with it depends on the level, the nature of the relationship you have and the level of rapport you have with that person. And it also depends on the extent of the forensic schema therapy that you've um, that you've completed in terms of exploring and labelling modes for that individual yeah. and that kind of thing. Usually early on in the process with, with guys, I will introduce schema mode concepts mm-hmm. and schema modes, and we've got the schema cards, which we will will then use to sort of try to make sense of what kind of schemas and uh, sorry, what kind of modes are relevant for that person. And typically, you know, I, you know, they may or may not be engaging, but I will typically kind of say, okay, well, this mode's probably relevant at this time. What do you think? And, oh, yeah, that's probably relevant. Because I guess, you know, what's come up for me in in supervision often of other therapists uh, who may have a client with some of this kind of flavour is this kind of, thing you have to hold which is the client has let's say a kind of manipulating mode right like a comment yeah. mode or mm-hmm. that's one of their prominent modes mm-hmm. and that's the reality and that's how they cope with pain or to get some advantage at moments when they're in touch with the backstage okay and then i guess the the, the sort of thing to hold in the therapy is like what if they well a what if they just pull the wool over your eyes and they never engage in therapy but worse than that what if they actually start using the therapy for ill ends Mm. What if they start with that kind of manipulator mode saying things like, um, oh, yeah, you know, she had a vulnerable child and this is what she thinks she needs. And, you know, so have you ever had that kind of situation? Because I've I've run into that a couple of times and I have a particular take on it. Have mm. you seen that kind of thing? Like if you educate about the schema model to someone who's intelligent and with a con man mode, can they use that for ill ends? Yeah, probably, yeah. Um, have you ever seen something like that before? In my experience, I find that being in conning manipulator mode is it, it, the longer you spend with someone, the, the easier it is. And, well, it, it, it's hard to maintain that space all the time in, in mm. therapy you're working with someone over the longer term. It, there starts to be inconsistencies. And the inconsistencies is, I think, when someone's in an overcompensating space, you know, well, they're just right? from their, their emotional you can so, feel it. You can call it out. You sort of yeah. You start to kind of sense. Well, that doesn't quite feel right. You know, it feels like when you're telling me you're upset about this, it just feels like you're putting it on a bit. It doesn't feel like it doesn't have any sense of genuine. To sort of call it. Yeah, it's always so, hard when the people are not being straight with you because it feels like everything's just on sand. It's kind of like nothing stable. So I guess you know being able to kind of really you know make that a, a, a explicit point. Yeah, and, pretty and, important. Well, 
once we've labelled it in terms mm-hmm. of uh, this is a side of him or, yeah. or the person, then yeah. then it becomes easier to start to kind of introduce, well, I'm wondering if what's happening now is that there's that side of you that wants mm-hmm. to just kind of con and... and, yeah. and Absolutely. And when guys, when guys, when so it's the same yeah. sort of start, it's sort of building awareness in that side, being direct about that in the therapy relationship, pointing out uh, its triggers and pointing out, you know, when it might be happening and getting exactly. them aware of that and 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 I will always communicate and saying look that's okay you can you can do that but I'm just really curious to know what that's about I I want to understand why you feel you need to do that with me and and then we'll see if we can have a conversation around that and um and I guess what I've sort of come up against in in supervising other people is some anxiety in the therapist about that you know that if if they were to use the conning you know in other words do you make a psychopath more of a psychopath that kind if, of thing. If they well, if you teach them some of these things, right? About modes, it can it be used for ill ends. But also, I guess part of my view on this is is it's inevitable that as you start digging around in, in, in the backstage and in the feelings, that the, the person's coping modes will get triggered. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And and, and as a clean psych, we're used to that. Like, oh, here's the avoidant protector, here's you know, uh, here's the attached protector. Yeah. For you, that's just a part of the work. That's just daily grind. Like, okay, we're going into more of the pain now and I can expect some of these other coping modes to pop up. And that's just something that you have to be explicit about. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. And it's not a reason not to do the therapy. It's It just no, is no, the therapy. Exactly. And, and you know, the psychopathic personalities will seek to exploit opportunities to to you know to their own ends and, and i mean that's, that's the other thing i learned off well. dave bernstein like around this as well um and thinking about this he very much focuses on the therapy relationship as like this is the therapy like um me calling you out when it feels a bit ingenuine like that 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 is a big the you know almost all of the therapy process for someone like this particularly early on yeah yeah, no, very much I mean, so. speaking with the therapy relationship side of things, then, you know, limited parenting is a big part of schema therapy, you know, and obviously you've got custodial settings, you know, you can't really sort of jump over and sort of hold someone's hand necessarily, or even, even I've had part, you know, situations in the past where I've suggested, oh, well, you know, giving a recording or giving even anything, a piece of paper to someone that's sort of um, incarcerated, that's nothing, you can't do that. You know, in terms of, yeah, you know, how do you see limited repairing different, you know, the limitations or ways around that? Yeah. Look, I think that um, you can still do limited reparenting in, 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 in custodial contexts. I mean, through imagery, through, you know, being genuine, caring mm-hmm. about them, being, you know, responsive and compassionate in the session. Um, and, you know, you can... Um, you know, I've lent guys books and given them, you know, shown them, you know, so what I... You get it back? Uh, yes, absolutely. And it, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing that because, you know, like the, it carries a weight with it. Like when you actually sort of say, oh, well, I've got this book that I think you might like, and this suddenly, you know, has some, you know, um, you know, significant meaning. It's like, wow, this is, this, this means that this is serious or, or something like that. And then... Transitional object, yeah. In perfect condition, and and um, and everything like that. So I've never had a problem with that. Um, I, so you have to be creative you know, in some ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of, yeah. To, uh, I think with, I guess my experience uh, having 
work with regular in regular clinical contexts and also within the um, forensic context is that within regular um, within forensic context it just takes longer. You know, you have to spend more. Like if it takes six months to 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 start doing good um, uh, schema work with someone in the clinical context in terms of sees you in therapy in the community, it's going to take twelve or eighteen months before you can get to the same space yeah, with yeah. someone um, in in a forensic context because their schemas are you know in, in um, you know like a lot of them you know have massive issues around mistrust and mm, because mm. as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast. The forensic context is different because in many yeah. cases they're being forced to go. You yeah. know, so there's yeah. the additional work through all that stuff on mm. top of it. Yeah, yeah you yeah, gotta, you know, it's not this is not voluntary. Mm. And and you know, like so how do I trust you? And you work for the you work for those guys, so you're always gonna So this takes know, some time, like that initial mm. safety and bonding part of the therapy, like until until they start coming in and like actually want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. I guess also with, with limited parenting, you know, I, I guess a lot of the time, at least my supervisees were always sort of talking about the caring, nurturing, guidance sort of side of things. But half of it is also limited parenting, being empathic confrontation and this sort of stuff. So I'm assuming that element is just as important, especially with overcompensation. Boundary setting. Yeah, perfect. Like, yeah. for instance, you know, like, uh, I mean, only, only the other week to give it, you know, there's one of my clients had been in an altercation and he ends up chasing a guy down the street with a pickaxe. And and then you're kind of like, he's telling me about this story. And 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 then, you know, you have to kind of go, well, wait a minute, I, I'm really concerned about this, you know, mm. I have a problem with this, you know. Like, about the pickaxe. <laughs> I know, <laughs> I know mm. that, that, that there's a side of you that feels really vulnerable and, and then you have to start that process. And there's this side of you that just wants to destroy people when they when yeah. feel threatened, and and that guy just gets in the way of you being able to get you, you know. So you you do that. I find that I do that constantly with with within sessions where you kind of pull them up and you boundary yeah. them, and, yeah. and and that Mate. for a lot of them they've never they've never heard that. Yeah, right? yeah. You, yeah. You know, they come from back. Part of the care. Never heard anyone go, hey. Mm. That's a real problem. Mm. And I don't want you to do that because you're going to hurt yourself. You're going to get yourself in trouble. Or, yeah. Well, they've had the limit and it's been abusive. So they haven't had an empathic. I mean, it's got dealt to it or something. Yeah. 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 yeah they're, they're, yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're sort of on the, on the wrap up a little bit. We've got a few more little questions for you, Lars, mate. Um, okay. This next one I've got uh, is a sort of, I guess, you know, thinking about, um, you know, budding forensic schema therapists out there. Yes. Right. If you, if, could you think of three things you would tell? You know the budding forensic schema therapist. Think, think about young Lars going into this like twenty years ago. Yeah, uh, what are three things you'd like to convey to the fresh, younger you coming into this? If you could, if you could tell tell him three things. Um, well, I would say that one of the most important things that to get is a good mentor, a good supervisor, and not just for accreditation, but for the long term, get someone that you can regularly talk to about this stuff and that you feel safe with, and that you can explore your um, reactions and your sort of um, your distress and anxiety and, and and how things go badly and everything like that. That's I think really really. Cool. In other words, it almost you need your own therapist in a way, like well, under the I, sort of guise of supervision, but you need that yeah. kind of support. I do, and and someone that you can be that, that you're attuned to, and that you're orientated to, 
to you know that the process of it is your your personal development and personal processing and dealing with with these experiences i think that's really important um as a as a schema therapist i think it's you know ongoing training in in in, in schema therapy is, is you know like a no-brainer um well what else would i say i think three you got three come on where's the last yeah, one come on mate you're looking at close your eyes Lars. just imagine you're there he's at the university of newcastle and you look in his eyes and you okay. say mate what does he need to know <laughs> turn around and go home no <laughs> no i i would um uh, you know what, what I would say is, is is be mindful of not taking things too personally. You know, like I think that one of the things that I see a lot of young psychologists who end up working in this environment, they um, in, in many cases they 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 take things too personally in terms of how the the clients react and how the institutions react. I've worked in institute and I, and for a long time I, I found that I I got really really frustrated with the fact that institutions didn't do things better or they were this way or that way and and um and and i'd spend a lot of time and energy sort of worrying about that and i would say you know like let go of that it is what it is and you just so again that's interesting it's it's sort of the second piece is still working on your own reactions in a way yeah absolutely it's a massive piece Mm, totally totally i think that's three (laughs) okay we'll give you that uh a little bit of a crystal ball question as we wind down. Yes. I mean, where do you see this work going, like forensic schema therapy, going into the future? Do, do you think this will kind of take off more now that we have the RCT data? And where do you see this going? Absolutely. I would say that within the next five or ten years, we're going to see math, massive growth in the in the development of forensic schema therapy and the treatment of severe and uh, enduring dangerous personality disorder. There's a lot of interest out there already before the RCT. You know, we've got contact with um, Corrections, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, New Zealand, uh, even so what, Singapore. And so they're what, all kind of, there's a base interest in schema. Absolutely, because what's happening within some of the legislation that's being passed in Queensland and Australia and around the world as well is this preemptive uh, legislation to keep people who are assessed as being high risk or dangerous in some way beyond the actual prison terms or, or on a continuing detention order. And, and, and in many cases, I guess, uh, the individuals that get flagged for this kind of legislation are severely personality disorder. They're really antisocial, narcissistic, paranoid, psychopathic. So they're really difficult people. Um, and um, putting them on, keeping them in, in jail um, because they're supposedly high risk or, or under heavy supervision order also compels a state communities to to actually provide them treatment to give them the opportunity to correct the things that might be wrong with them or people assess as so the legislation context is is kind of ripe as well at the moment such that there's a need yeah so i think so we have this these group of people that are being flagged and then we've got to offer them something but what do we offer them and and that they will have already been through the group programs and this is where lars comes in <laughs> yeah, well, well, and this is where I think that 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 schema therapy is really, really relevant because at the end of the day, what you're working with is personality disorder, disorder, severe personality disorder, and that's what you're trying to treat and and manage is the is the the, the manifestation of of those kinds of problems. So, so I believe that in the next five, ten years, we're going to see a huge growth in interest in and in research in in this area, and uh, it, it it will be supported hopefully by government funding because. Well, they have to give them treatment. They have to give them something. And it's evidence-based. We have an RCT now. We now have 
Absolutely evidence-based, yes. And one of the reasons for us uh, having you on the show, really, was also to, you know, sort of um, uh, bring to light that you're doing a, a training program with Schema Therapy Training Online, plug, yes. plug. Um, so that'll be coming up in the next couple of months. We're in the middle of sort of getting you to... I know you're working hard on that as well. How's that been going? <laughs> like the process of, of crystallising this into some content and, and sort of getting, getting it out there, getting it taped and stuff. Yes, yes. Look, I'm really excited about that. I think uh, I really enjoy training. I um, and and I'm, I'm hopefully going to be creating something uh, along with you guys, along with you, Rob. You know, with th- that is engaging and interesting and applicable uh, straight away. You know, I think um, uh, you know. I, I guess one of the things uh, um, we uh, th- that I've one of the ideas that I've had or. Uh, for training is is being able to use um, uh, movies and things like that that um, that really I think encapsulate. Um, yeah. We talked about the Joker, right? Like, yeah, um, Joker. For your training program, mm-hmm. having that thread of the Joker throughout throughout all the training programs, which is a great great you know tragic movie, uh, really good drama. But I mean, uh, it, it's it's actually also a great um, uh, educational movie potentially for mm-hmm. skin therapy in terms of how. Um, uh, you know these things exist and evolve and and, and develop in a person. Um, so yeah, so the the training will be will be interactive. It'll be it'll be engaging. There'll be lots of good, interesting case studies. There'll be um, movie clips, all, all that stuff. Movie clips, yes. Role uh, plays, yeah. anecdotes. So if you're interested, uh, it will be probably coming up. Have we got, have we got a date lined up for this yet or sort of some sometime soon? There will be. By the time the <laughs> um, podcast is up, we'll have a date up there. And and so if you look at Schema Therapy Training online, we've got a whole suite of other different courses there, ranging from imagery, rescripting to uh, contextual schema therapy and now eating disorders, yeah. substance yeah. use and schema therapy. So it's schematherapytrainingonline.com. .com, yeah. So Lars, yes. it's been a pleasure. This Thank has been a fantastic much. chat. Very absolutely enjoyed it immensely. It's lovely to see you guys again. So until next time, hopefully everyone uh, enjoyed that listen uh, on sympathy and uh, what's the schemata. We're going to be having some more of these coming up every month or two, or hopefully every month. Really, by the time me and Rob sort of get our heads together and get more people to talk shop about sympathy. So until then, we'll see you guys soon. Awesome. See you guys. Thanks. See you later. Thanks, Lars. Thank you very much. Bye. See ya.